All right, how we doing? Good. Thanks, Claude. Appreciate that. No, it's, it's fun to be here with you this morning. Um, I want to tell you about one of my favorite things, and that is uh, something that I actually don't have access to. I haven't had cable since about 2007 uh, when I lived with my mother. Um, but if you, I do enjoy ESPN. And if you turn on ESPN, the chances are you will not find sports, but you would find people talking about sports. This is what ESPN is all about. One of my favorite people on ESPN to, to talk or more yell about sports is Stephen A. Anderson. And uh, this is why. It's because Stephen A. always has an opinion, and it is always divergent from whoever else has an opinion on the show. I just want, one time, I just want Stephen A. Anderson to be like, you know, that was a good point. I agree. He argues with everything. He, he does not know how to ever agree. Or maybe he could say, you know, I disagree, but that's okay. We can still be friends. Come here, give me a hug. That's, that's never happened on talk TV. This is a common theme in, in society. It's a common theme in our lives. When people disagree, you just expect them to not get along with one another. I remember in 2016, during the presidential election, um, there was a debate between Hillary and, and Donald Trump, our president, and he and they, they asked him, uh, they asked the two of them, say, they said, at the very end, they said, you know, you've said a lot of things not nice about one another. Why don't you say something nice about each other? And you would have thought that they had, like, killed their firstborn child or something. Like, they both, like, just winced. Like, oh, I don't know if I can think of anything. They both came up with something. Um, but just the idea of having to say something nice to someone who you disagree with vehemently about many important things was very challenging for both of them. In today's society, it, it just doesn't seem like there's any way for people to hold different opinions on a topic and actually get along with one another. Am I right? It just seems like people fight about anything that they disagree about. They cannot be friends. When we deem someone unintelligent or wrong, what do we do? We avoid them, right? You don't want to hang out with people that you view as unintelligent and wrong about important things. How many people have you unfollowed on Facebook because they said things that you deemed unintelligent or wrong? Today's passage teaches us how we can actually enter into real relationships with people that we think are genuinely wrong about significant issues. And it's an important topic. It's an important topic for us because there are people in your life that you think and who genuinely are, it's not even just your opinion, but there are people in your life who are wrong about things that you are right about. That is a truth. Now, what do you do with them? Do you avoid them? Do you force them to change their views? How do you relate with them? That's what this passage is about. How can people who hold deeply different beliefs, practices, and views actually live with one another? How can we do this? Here's what the world tells us to do. Here's what modern society says about those who hold different views. It's tolerance. You should tolerate everyone. You should tolerate anyone. We should be tolerant of everyone no matter what they believe. In fact, many people would say that tolerance is the only moral absolute 
left in our society. Or, or put another way, I've heard it said like this, that the only moral absolute left is to insist that no one's morals are absolute. This is the day and age of tolerance that we live in. The, the world says we need to be tolerant, but this passage actually gives us something better than tolerance. It says tolerance, sure, but there's something more powerful than tolerance. You don't have to stop there. There is a way that you can actually love and live with people who disagree with you and not just tolerate them. Paul teaches us how the gospel makes us into a people who are sacrificially loving, receptive, and peaceful toward people with whom they deeply differ. This is better than tolerance. So let's look at this passage. I'm going to be honest, this is a challenging passage. Um, 1 Corinthians 8 is where we're at today. Um, we're in the middle of the series on 1 Corinthians uh, that we've called Godly Wisdom in a Secular Age. The, the Corinthian church is this new church in this highly secular city, this city that um, it's amazing that there's a church that even exists here. This city is, is highly what, what most people would consider immoral or at least loosely moral. There were people that worshipped all kinds of different gods. There were a lot of things going on in this city that are a little bit more like what you would think about in a modern city than what you would think about in an ancient city. And so what, the stuff that Paul is addressing is amazing. And like I said, this, this passage is challenging. Even, I mean, even this morning, my wife and I were just sitting talking about this passage and, and talking about the challenges of nuancing these, these principles that we learn from this. It, it's a challenging passage, but I think that the Lord has something powerful for us. So let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Let's read together. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there, so, there, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in a for any for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this per, this weak person is destroyed, the brother the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, 
lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to him. So here's what's going on here. Okay, it's a complicated passage. Let me explain what's going on. In Corinthian society, they had lots of idols. And what I mean by an idol is like a fake god. So they had lots of little gods that they would sacrifice food toward in temples. And they would worship these different gods. They had a lot of them. And in fact, this was a really big issue about eating food sacrificed to idols in the early church. Because at almost every big event in in the city of Corinth, they would have meat. They would have food. Food came with the events. So as you went to these events, as you went to these parties, shindigs, whatever, there was almost always food there, and that food was almost always sacrificed to an idol. And so this became a dividing point for the Christians. The, the Gentile Christians, the ones who had grown up in, in Corinth, who had been worshiping these idols just a few years, a few weeks, whatever, a few, a few minutes before. But now these, these Christians, they now love Jesus. They would not eat that meat. Because when they ate the meat that had been sacrificed to idols, they snapped back into their old way of life. And they thought, okay, I can worship Jesus and I can worship this, this other idol. They, it, they could not separate the eating of the meat from the worship of the God that the meat was sacrificed to. Because that's the way they had done it. That was who they were before they were called to Jesus. So these Gentile Christians, the ones that used to worship the idols, they are now no longer eating meat sacrificed to idols. Because that just reminds them of their old way of life, and it makes them snap back into idol worship. Jewish Christians, on the other hand, never worshipped idols. They had always worshipped the one true God, but they were not enlightened to the truth of Jesus being his son. And so once they start worshipping Jesus... They're, they're cool, and they, they look at the idol meat, they look at the meat sacrificed to idols, and they're like, eat up. Like, we never worship these gods. It's cool for us to eat this. And they're right. They're right. The, the food offered to idols, it had no magic principle to it. It had no magic particles that were, now this, now this food belongs to this idol. It was not that way. The, the Jewish Christians who were eating the meat, they were correct. But in their eating, the Gentile Christians who felt convicted about eating the meat, they were following them and eating this meat, and they were breaking their conscience, and they could not be undividedly devoted to the Lord. So it's a little bit of a complicated thing going on, but I think that you can get it. I think that you can get it. Here's the amazing part of this passage, and it gives us insight into how Christian love is better than tolerance. Those who eat the meat, Paul tells them, Paul tells these Christians who can eat the meat that they should actually refrain from eating the meat. They should withhold their rights. They should give up their rights, their liberty, their freedom. They should give up their freedom for the sake of those who are convinced that they cannot eat the meat. He's saying, hold yourself back. Restrain your own freedom so that you can love your brothers. He tells them to give up their rights. That's because this passage is all about being free in Christ, meaning that you're being bound in love. Being free in Christ means that you're bound in love. The law of unity surpasses the law of liberty. The law of unity surpasses the law of liberty. So, 
you can see how there was an argument in the early church between people who deeply differed about the way that they viewed the world. Now, how does Paul encourage these people to live together? How can we live with someone who deeply holds a different view than our own, even when they're wrong? Even when they're wrong, how can we love someone when they're wrong? And here's how we can do it with the power of Christ. Three ways, three, three things, three steps. First, understand the conscience. Second, embrace the gospel. And third, enter the relationship. Understand the conscience, embrace the gospel, enter the relationship. So first, understand the conscience. How do we live with those who hold different views than us? We understand the conscience. The Bible talks about those with two different types of consciences, the weak and the strong. But the Bible doesn't use weak and strong conscience in the same way that we would use weak and strong conscience. So when the Bible says weak conscience, we might think, we might think this way about a weak conscience. If I, if I said weak conscience, it might be in the, in the context of another kid punches my kid at the playground. Okay, And I look at that kid, and I assume he's an only child because I'm an only child, and that's what I would have done. And then I say, he has a weak conscience. This little miniature Vladimir Putin just doesn't have a conscience at all. That's what I mean when I say weak conscience. But when Paul says weak conscience, what he means is that this person has a soft conscience. That they are easily convicted. It's not necessarily a diss. It's not a bad thing. They're convicted about more than what they need to be, but they're people of deep conviction. They're people who things matter to them. People with weak consciences see the world in black and white, no gray. They want to know what's right, what's wrong, and then they're going to stick to it. They want to know how they can live their life, and they have very little tolerance for ambiguity in that. Now, people with strong consciences, on the other hand, have, have a much greater sense of the shades of gray that we have in life. And there are shades of gray in different things. These people realize that not everything is as simple as white and black. They're morally nuanced. These people tend to be theologically informed and don't mind ambiguity. These folks with strong consciences are all about liberty and freedom in Christ, exercising their rights. They say... They might say, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, I'm going to go for it. That's, that's how these strong conscience people are built. So the people who have weak consciences in Paul's story are those who feel convicted that eating meat, sacrificed to idols, they can't do it. They're, these people are actually wrong. They're actually uninformed. They don't have the knowledge. They, they don't need to feel convicted about this. And Paul actually goes out of his way to correct them. He corrects the weak conscience people, but... Then he goes back and he rebukes the strong conscience people. So his, his words to the, strong, the people of the strong conscience are a lot, a lot stronger than the weak conscience. With the weak conscience, he says this, we know that an, an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But while Paul corrects those with weak consciences, he actually rebukes the strong conscious ones. And he says that when you sin against your brothers and wound their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. 
is a much stronger rebuke for those people. Here's the deal. All of us have a weak conscience on some things. It's not a bad thing. If something breaks your conscience, if something breaks your conscience, it is actually wrong for you to do that thing. Even if it might not be technically wrong, if you cannot do it while being undividedly devoted to the Lord, it is wrong. You shouldn't do that. When you feel guilty, I don't encourage you to just say, well, it's okay. The Bible doesn't actually talk about this or, or whatever if it's, if it's a morally gray issue. I encourage you to explore that guilt and figure out why do you feel guilty and if you need to go to the Lord in that guilt and ask for forgiveness. Now, everything you do when you feel guilty isn't necessarily a sin, but if you, if you do something without being undividedly devoted to the Lord, you are not doing it correctly. And that's why when these people would eat the meat sacrificed to idols, they would think, I can follow Jesus and I can follow my old religion at the same time. And that's causing them to sin because they're not living their lives undividedly devoted to the Lord. But here's the thing about having a strong conscience. Here's the thing about having a strong conscience. If you exercise your freedom, but you cause your brother to do what breaks his conscience, you have sinned. That's clear as day. If you cause someone by your influence to break their conscience, if you cause someone else to stumble, even if you've done nothing wrong, but by your influence you've caused someone else to stumble, you've done wrong. The Bible portrays a community-based ethics, which is, flies in the face of our individual-based ethics. Ethical utilitarianism says that it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anybody else. And so you decide what's right and wrong for yourself, just don't hurt anyone. But what they're missing is that your influence of the way in which you live your life actually can hurt people. And so you have to think not only about the way that you literally hurt people, but is your influence going to hurt this person? That's what's going on with the strong conscious people. Their influence is causing the weak conscious people to sin, to break their conscience. Now, there's all kinds of misapplications of this, all kinds of misapplications of this. I'll give you an example. It's kind of a funny one. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who, who was trying to illustrate a misapplication of this, and he told me that he went and preached at a church. And after he got done preaching, his, uh, one of the congregants came up to him. It was a lady, and she said, Sir, you can't preach here with that beard. It offends my conscience. And he said, Well, are you tempted to grow a beard? And she said, No, it, it just offends me. And he said, Well, I'm sorry that you're offended, but I haven't caused you to stumble. Because causing someone to stumble means you're enticing them into the same thing that you did. And you're not going to grow a beard. So therefore, I have not enticed you to stumble in the same way that I've lived. Now, there's all kinds of illustrations that you can go here. The, the principle is nuanced. Wounding someone's conscience does not mean offending them or making them angry. It doesn't. Uh, people use it that way. People talk about it that way all the time, like, oh, if I do that, I'll offend them. And, you know, you should be considerate of how other people will think about the way that you act. That's an important principle for life. That's just life coaching, okay? Now we're getting away from the gospel. I'm just telling you good ways to live your life. Be considerate of those around you. But to, to sin in this way, to, to make your brother stumble, it means that you actually influence that person 
to do something that they view as immoral. Let me give you the best illustration I could think of. The best one I could think of is yoga. Um, I know I'm touching a, a touchy subject for many of you, you know, just got back from the yoga studio. Um, in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with yoga. I've never been Hindu, I've never been Buddhist, I've never practiced any religion that goes with yoga. I will, I will do yoga on occasion at home with Tony Horton from P90X, you know, we'll, we'll do those poses and work out a little bit. That's all right to me. I, think, I don't think there's anything wrong with standing in those, in those poses, stretching and, and sweating. But if I had a friend who was a Hindu or who had just become a Christian and he was a Hindu before, and he had spent his entire life practicing yoga, and while he was practicing yoga, he was doing worship. He was, it was a religious experience for him. I'm not going to look at that guy and say, hey, let's go to the yoga studio. You should be over that now. You're a Christian now. No, because he would go to the yoga studio, and he would basically be like, oh, okay, maybe I can worship this old guy, this old God that I had, and this new Jesus. So by my practicing yoga in that way, I could be leading him to sin. I could be enticing him to stumble. You feel me? This makes sense? This is tracking? So there's strong consciousnesses and weak consciousnesses. That's a weird word, consciousnesses. Um, I think I'm putting too many S's in there. Um, but there's a third type of conscience. And it's no conscience or a dulled conscience. A dulled conscience. There's people, and, and, th- and me too, there's things that used to prick my conscience, but now they simply don't. And that's okay on the issues of Christian freedom. That's okay when it comes to the gray areas of life, if the Bible doesn't forbid it. But there are often times when this goes too far, when it spreads like a nasty melanoma in our lives, when we get out our gray crayon and we start coloring things that are clearly black into the gray categories, and, and our conscience is dulled, and it has the spreading effect to where we get to the point to where we don't feel guilty about anything anymore. We don't feel convicted about anything anymore. Or there are things that really should convict us, and they don't. They really should make us run to the Lord, and they don't anymore. Through repetition, our conscience has been dulled. You don't have a soft conscience. You don't have a weak conscience. You don't have a strong conscience. You've got no conscience. Friends, if you don't feel guilty ever, if you don't ever feel convicted, your conscience has been dulled, or it might just be gone. When you understand the conscience, It helps you to be able to live with those who disagree with you. Because you're able to understand where they're coming from. The first step is understand where someone else is coming from. See it from their side of the road. The second way to live with those who deeply differ from you is to embrace the grace of God. Embrace the grace of God. Now, how do you relate with those who differ from you? There's a few options, all right? The first option is to simply exclude them. This is when you unfollow them or you don't include them in your plans. You, you have excluded them from your life. The second option is to avoid them. These are for the people that you can't really exclude, but when you walk in to church on a Sunday 
When you walk into church on a Sunday, you are going the opposite direction when you run into them. It's like, oh, this way, I'm going to avoid this person. That is an awkward conversation waiting to happen. Then there's a third option, and it's assimilation. You can assimilate them. You can exclude them. You can avoid them, or you can assimilate them. And that, that's what the modern idea of tolerance really is about. It's about assimilation. With assimilation, you might say, I'm not going to be mean to you or anything. But if you don't change your ideas to my ideas and start getting wise and thinking about the world the right way, I'm not really going to hang out with you. So if you're willing to change, if you're willing to assimilate to my idea then I will have a real relationship with you. After all, you're wrong, you know. So you should do that. Assimilation, though, is just another version of exclusion. Just another way to exclude people. Christianity says that this isn't good enough. Assimilation isn't good enough. Tolerance isn't good enough. We can have real relationships with those who which we disagree with, with whom we disagree. And here's why. The concept of grace controls our thoughts and our actions. The concept of grace controls our thoughts and our actions. The grace of God is something that you have to understand in order to be a Christian. You cannot become a Christian without understanding the grace of God. But it's also something that has to control you as a Christian. You don't just understand it when you become a Christian. It has to control you as a Christian. The most basic teaching in Christianity, it doesn't get more simple than this, is that you are not saved because you were right. You were not saved because you were smart, because you had enough knowledge. You were saved because Jesus came down and lived the life you should have lived and redeemed you to right relationship with God. It had nothing to do with how much you knew and how smart you were. You're not right about anything, everything. In fact, if you call your Christ, yourself a Christian today, that means that there was a time in life when you would say yourself that you were wrong. I was wrong about the way that the world worked. Now Jesus has changed me and he saved me and I have a greater understanding about God and about how the world works. Now strong conscience people always think they're right. Strong conscience people roll their eyes all the time. You know those people. You might be that person. Where you see someone doing something uninformed or unintelligent, you hear a story on the radio, whatever it is, and you just roll your eyes. Because they are so uninformed. They are so wrong. What are they thinking? They're so silly. Why are they doing that? Don't they know it doesn't matter? That doesn't matter. Why are you making that such a big deal? This is why Paul says this. He says, quote, unquote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, but he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you think that you know, then you don't know as you ought to know. That's what he's saying, that, that knowledge puffs you up. It makes you prideful. makes you think that you know it all. It gives you the eyes that will roll down the street if you see someone doing something you deem is wrong. But love, it builds up. It builds up. If, if, you, have, if you consider yourself to be informed... Do you say what you think and don't care what others think? Do you scoff at those who do things that you don't understand or that you think are silly? Do you scoff at those Christians who refuse to drink? 
Do you giggle at those who won't watch the same TV shows or movies as you? Do you think that you're right on any topic and disdain those who are wrong? What about politics? What about climate change? What about guns? What about religion? What about nuanced matters of theology? How do you treat those who you think are wrong and who might actually be wrong? How do you treat them? Are you a knowledge-er? Are you someone who has knowledge that puffs up? Are you someone who has love that builds up? The strong, conscience people are rather weak in this regard. The strong, conscience people always think they're right. They always scoff. They can't live with other people in an understanding way. If you are here and you have a strong conscience, it is making you into a jerk. How to not be a jerk, reflect and learn. It's making you insufferable. You're insisting that people assimilate to have a real relationship with you. Friends, let me give you a lesson that has taken me, it's going to take me a lot longer. I, I was going to say it's, it's taken me 32 years to learn because I'm 32 years old. I haven't learned it yet. I don't have this. It's far less important that you prove that you're correct than it is that you love God and love others. It's way less important for you to prove that you're right. I don't have that yet, um, but I want it. I need it. Because, and here's why, because of the grace of God, I go into relationships and I know that I don't need to feel superior to others because I'm not superior to them. I can go into relationships and disagree and have the deepest respect because I know that in spite of the fact that, I, that someone else might be wrong on something, and they often are, that there's still probably a better person than me. They can be wrong and still be a better person than I am because I was not saved because I'm a good person. I was saved only by the grace of God. On the cross, Jesus saw that I was wrong and he needed to die for me. And in so doing, he entered a relationship with me. He saw that I was wrong. He gave up his rights to be right. He died for me and entered a relationship with me, though I was wrong. Now, in response to that, we give up our rights. We give up our freedoms so that we can enter into rela real relationship with one another. We can enter into this relationship with other people that we think are wrong because that's what Christ did for us. While we were still living as if life had no God. While we were still the enemies of God, Christ entered into relationship with us. He gave up his rights and died the death that we deserved. And so how do we do this? How do we embrace this good news, embrace this gospel that says, I don't have to prove that I'm right because I'm not proved right before God by being right. I can love you as you are. How do you do it? You enter the relationship. Lastly, you enter the relationship. How do you enter the relationship? Let's say, let's say that there's someone in your life that you view as uninformed or prudish or whatever. What do you do? You judge them, which is often an accurate assessment. I don't want you to get this wrong. There are people that are wrong. 
that you know, okay? There are people who are uninformed, and that's okay. So you, you, give the, you judge them, oftentimes an accurate judgment. Then what do you do? Do you steer clear of them and hope that they don't ask you to get coffee? Do you unfriend the person and surround yourself with people that think just like you do, creating this echo chamber around yourself where you just hear the same voices over and over again? Here is what gospel people do. They make a negative evaluation about someone, and then they enter into the relationship with the person that they think is wrong. And they do it in such a way that they're willing to actually change their lives in order to have that real relationship. They're willing to make significant changes to their own preferences and the way that they live their life to have that relationship. That's the way that Christ enters our life, and that's the way that we, in turn, enters others. He gave up his rights to be treated as God, Philippians 2, for us, so that now we give up our rights, our freedoms, our liberties, so that we can live in real relationship with others. This is challenging. Tim Keller lists four ways that you do this. Four ways that you do this. And it, let me say just for a minute that these four ways give us a path to walking alongside someone. Instead of avoiding them or excluding them, when someone's wrong in your life, it doesn't mean that they're relegated to be wrong forever. You, of course, should try to bring people to greater understanding. You, of course, should do that. But it takes a long time, and you have to come alongside them. You cannot argue them down. Because when you argue with someone, you get face-to-face -face with them, and what do they do? They, they back up, they're ready to fight. But when you come alongside they're much more willing to walk the journey with you. And so Keller, he lists these four ways that you do this with someone, that you enter this relationship. The first is you make space for the weak person. You don't avoid them or exclude them. You make space for them in your life. It's going to be challenging. And that's why he lists number two as be willing to change. Be willing to give something up yourself. Be willing to, if you get halfway in this relationship where you're trying to convince this person that they're wrong, and then you realize that you've been wrong the whole time, be willing to change. In college, I had a friend who was walking alongside me. I was in theological error. He told me that. I set out to prove him wrong. Halfway through it, I realized he was right. And then I didn't tell him for six months. Because that's an awkward conversation. Who wants to do that? But I should have. Third, expect to be misunderstood. Recently, I heard a lecture that said, of all of my favorite things, of all of my gods, being understood is my favorite. And that pierced my soul in such a profound way. Because how many arguments do I get into and do I fight vehemently, not to prove that I'm right, but just to feel understood? And when you enter a relationship with someone who has deeply different beliefs than you, you will be misunderstood. Just be prepared for it. And that's okay. That's okay. You can have a real relationship and still be misunderstood because you love that person and you aren't their friend because you're right. You can be misunderstood. And lastly, honor the pace of God in their lives and not try to hurry it up. Honor the pace that God's working in their life. Many people change a lot 
slower than what we want them to. We want God to act like a miracle healer when he's really more like a physical therapist. It takes a while, oftentimes, but I'm convinced that you can enter into these real relationships and walk with people over years. You might not ever prove that you're right to them, but you can have this real relationship that's bound and built up by love and not by knowledge. Being free in Christ means being bound in love. It means being bound in love, even with those who are different. That's why we can be in a church with people that are on different sides of every one of those issues that I listed before, because we love people because we love one another, and we're bound in love, and we know that knowledge puffs up, because the, the gospel has changed us, and we know that we are this community that God has built. One way the, that we display the way that we are bound in love to one another, church, is through the sacred meal of communion. We remember that Christ's body was broken for us, and his blood was shed for us, and because of that, we've become a new family. We've become the body of Christ. We've become a family. We've become a church. We've been unified by him, united by him. On the night that he was betrayed, he initiated a sacred meal, and he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And every week we're t we've been taking communion to remember that Christ has died on our behalf. Though we were wrong, when we were wrong, he entered the relationship with us. Now, over the next song, we'll be taking communion. There'll be stations up front. Just over the next song, walk, walk up front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it. This, is, this part's a little bit different. Dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is marked with twine. Right. It's a rhymes. Um, <laughs> um, all the bread is gluten-free, so you celiacs can participate. We don't want to exclude you. And as you take, evaluate yourself. This meal is for those who are, have been united with Christ and are living in union together in the body of Christ. And so if that's true of you today, we encourage you to take Receive communion over the next song. Receive this, this good display of the gospel in physical way for you. But if it's not true of you, I encourage you that today you don't receive communion. You can receive Christ. He can change you. And so maybe you just stay in your seat. Maybe you pray. Maybe you grab me or Claude after the service. Maybe you grab a friend and say, hey, you need to pray. Let's, let's talk about this. And this is an opportunity to, to understand that life-changing power of the gospel. Let's pray. Uh, you guys can stand. Let's pray. Let's, let's receive communion in the next song. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will unite us as a church body, that though we have done this partnership and there are people that don't know each other, and there are people who have different ideas and different thoughts and different knowledge in this room. Help us to see that love binds up, love builds up. Help us to sacrifice our own 
preferences at times for the good of others as you've done that for us. God, as we take communion, we pray that you'll be with us in a special way, that we can feel your presence. And God, we, we pray that you'll continue the good work that you've started in this church, that you'll see it to completion, that you will shepherd us, that you will lead us and help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.